Well, we want to uh, wrap up what we're going to call uh, round three, what we've been calling round three in the dialogue section of Job. If you'd like to take your Bible at this time and uh, turn to Job chapter 31. Remember, uh, the book of Job is divided into really um, four different sections. There, there's the beginning, for, uh, first three chapters, two to three chapters, that really talk about um, uh, Job's affliction, how that came about, and we learn about Satan's plan, sort of the behind-the-scenes uh, part of the story. The second section is the section that we're going to wrap up today, and that's what we call the dialogue section. This is roughly chapters 1 to 3. Actually, I'm sorry, chapters 1 to 2. The dialogue section, which runs from chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3 all the way to chapter 31. And in that, that's where we have those, that, uh, those three rounds of dialogue between Job and his three friends. The third section that we'll look at uh, in the coming weeks is where this other younger friend named Elihu shows up, and he's going to talk from 32 to uh, 37, I think it is. And um, th- this is interesting. We, we haven't talked much about Mr. Elihu, and... Um, he really is, it's funny, he, he's an enigma to the commentators. They don't know what to do with Elihu. But it's interesting, as we've wrestled with the message of the book in these two sections, what Elihu is going to say actually fits right in with what we've been learning. Uh, so I trust that that's good evidence that we're on the right track at least. And then finally we see the part of the book where God steps in, chapter 38, 42. And there's a, there's a little conclusion section at the end of 42 where God restores uh, Job's fortune and, and all that. But So here's where we're at. We're going to finish this up today, and then in the coming weeks we'll start Elihu, and then the, this is going to be the best part right here. So more news at 10. Uh, let's look at where we've been, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off last time. Some new themes. Remember, we're not trying to go over everything that we've seen before. If it's a theme or an issue or a topic that we've seen in round one or round two, uh, we kind of wave our hands at it in round three. We don't need to repeat all of that again. But there have been some new things that we've seen in round three. Uh, speculation regarding Job's sin. We talked about that and in the frustration of not convincing Job that he had some hidden sin that he wasn't admitting to. The friends resort to trying to um, guess what the sin might be. And then he's talking about, well, you, you know, Job, we've seen you neglect widows. We've, we've seen you neglect the poor. We've seen you do this. We, they're just getting real nitpicky on all the things that Job may have done to bring about this terrible suffering on his life. Talked about that. Second thing we saw that was a new theme in round three is Job accusing God of being unjust to others. Um, at his weakest points, we've seen God, we've seen Job accusing God of injustice, uh, and yet in round three we see him go a step further. And as he looks around at the poor that are suffering and at the wicked that are prospering, he starts accusing God of being unjust to other people as well, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. 
We saw some good theology from Eliphaz. We talked a little bit about that last time. Uh, Eliphaz calling him to turn to God, to make God his delight, that God would be, as it were, his gold. Um, Very, very good counsel from Eliphaz. And just a footnote on that. Um, When you think about... When you think about um, the people in your life that are trying to help you in suffering, I mean, we, we, can, we can look at Job's three friends and we can say, man, these guys were terrible, horrible friends. I mean, they just gave bad advice. And, but, but, you know, real life isn't like that, usually. Re- real life usually goes like this. We have some well-meaning people that really do genuinely love us, that really genuinely are our friends, and they give some really good advice and they can also give some really lousy advice. And, and if we're honest, that's exactly the kind of friends that we are sometimes, too, to other people. And, and I, again, appreciate so much. I hope as you've been reading Job that, that you find Job to be a genuinely honest book. I remember Josh McDowell years and years ago. Uh, some of you guys uh, um, in, in your college days, uh, uh, Josh McDowell was, was kind of the big uh, author and, um, you know, he wrote um, uh, extensively on apologetics, you know, defending the faith and all that. And I remember reading a Josh McDowell years ago, a book by him, where he said, you know, one of the arguments that the Bible is real and true is that if, if you were writing a book about your religion being the right one or the best one and you were trying to fool everybody about it, you'd leave out most of what the Scripture talks about. Because God's greatest heroes, like Job, are, are surprisingly human. They blow it, just like you and me. They struggle with sin, just like you and me. Peter gets up at the moment that, that Jesus needed him to defend him, and what does he do? He denies him. The, the, the man that said, you're going to be the one to lead the church. Um, the honesty of this book, I think, authenticates it. Um, and we see that in the friends that in the midst of very bad theology, the friends actually tell them some very, very good things to do. And uh, chapter 20, 22, verses 12 to 30 is one of the better sections of the book there. Last time we talked extensively about wisdom. There's this, it, it, isn't it weird? Right in the middle of Job, right in the middle of the dialogue section, it's on and on and on and on, and then the, you turn the corner and there's this big thing that looks like it, it, it uh, should be in the book of Proverbs. It's this big, long chapter in wisdom. We go, what is this doing here? And uh, for those of you that may not have been here last time, um, uh, tell me, remind me, why is that wisdom chapter in chapter 28, why is it there? What's its purpose? Do you remember? I'll help you. Here's the conclusion of the wisdom chapter, okay? Let me read you the end. It's a, it's a whole chapter about wisdom, and he says you, you can't dig up wisdom, you can't buy wisdom, you can't go find it, you can't go um, earn it. Only God gives wisdom. Chapter 28, verse 23, God understands its way, and he knows its place. Verse 28 of chapter 28 concludes, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Okay? Why is that chapter there? Why is it there? Yes? Well, we've been hearing a whole lot of man's wisdom. That's right. That's right. See, see, in all of this, what, what is all of this? 
These are four people trying to figure out the mysteries of God in suffering. Those are four people trying to reason through in their experience what on earth is God doing? And, and, and it's not like they're out, you know, invest. I mean, they have some very strong opinions, don't they? Very, very strong opinions about what's going on. And, and as the reader, we're reading this going, no, no, you're missing the point. They don't know anything about Satan. They don't know anything about God uh, behind all this. They don't know the first two chapters of the book. And the reader, as the reader, we're reading this going, no, 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 you guys are all missing the point. And, and, and this dialogue, you know what it does to us, the readers? It builds frustration. You ever do that? You're, you're reading a novel or you're watching a movie and you're like, come on guys, you're missing it. Don't, you're not, you don't, you're, you don't get the point here. And then we turn the page to chapter 28 and we hear what? The fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And we say, yes, that's it. That's it. Because when human wisdom is exhausted, And when human wisdom has been shown to be inadequate, then we're ready to hear from God. Then we're ready to hear where wisdom truly comes from in a relationship with God. Old Testament code language called the fear of the Lord. So that's, that's a great chapter. It's not there by accident. I don't know how many commentators I read. They, well, we don't know why the wisdom chapter is here, but it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense why it's where it is. And then last time we concluded, I think this is where we stopped, um, inside about Job's past. I think it's one of the most sad chapters in the whole book where Job reflects on uh, his position, his health, his family. Um, We see him missing his children, thinking about when his children used to come and go from his house and and now nobody takes him seriously. They mock him. Like Jeremiah, they, they sing nasty songs about him. Uh, it's a very, very sad chapter. Well, let's, uh, let's see if we can wrap up chapter, uh, not chapter three, uh, round three, uh, by looking at this, this last defense. This is, um, it's interesting. In a, uh, any of you guys ever, ever been on a jury trial or you've seen a court case before? Watch Perry Mason, something like that? Um, what? There, there's a section in, in trials um, where the prosecution and the defense give a final argument, right? They give a final statement, the last word before, you know, in the case of a jury trial, the, the jury goes and uh, decides uh, their verdict um, or the judge in the case of a non-jury trial. Um, It's a final argument, final pleas. And chapter 31 is Job's final defense. It's his final plea, as it were, to defend his case and to once again uh, cry out that God would listen to him, that God would come out of hiding, uh, that God would hear his case. Let's look at it together. Chapter 31, verse 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And what is the portion of God from above, or the heritage of the Almighty from on high? Is not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? Does he not see my ways 
and number my steps. What is he saying in verses 3 and 4 there? What's he saying? Yeah, exactly. He says calamity is supposed to come to the unjust, right? Disaster is supposed to come to the workers of iniquity. That's not me. He says, does he not see my ways? Surely he knows I'm innocent. Verse 5, and this is interesting. This is, this is a rant is what this is. This is a rant. Um, he, he's going to go through and he's going to give all these for instances. If I did this horrible thing, then I deserve this. If I did this horrible thing, then I would deserve this. If I did this horrible thing, I, and, he, and he just has this catalog of all the things that he might have done wrong that the Lord would have been just in bringing on this suffering. And he goes through this whole thing here. Um, uh, chapter 31, verse 7, If my step has turned from the way, or my heart has followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. Verse 9, If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. It's interesting. The first area that he defends himself is the area of sexual purity. And um, maybe some of you are familiar with this or or you've heard people. um, There's actually a a software package. It's an Internet uh, accountability software package, uh, the the kind of thing you put on your computer to keep all the the bad stuff from, from coming through your Internet connection. Uh, and it's called Covenant Eyes. How many of you have heard that? Covenant Eyes? Um, that's where they get that name, right here in chapter 31, verse 1. Uh, Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And it's interesting. I, I, can't, I can't resist pulling the car over just for a minute and talking about this because in, in defending himself about sexual purity, he gives a progression which I think is very, very insightful when thinking about Uh, sexual lust and how temptation hits in this particular sin. Look at what he says here. Um, He's talking about the need to to make a covenant. I'll just just erase this because I need more board space than that. And again, this is, you understand, this is not not some big um, didactic section on how to deal with lust. But I think the observation that he makes is very helpful. and And I'm... Uh, when I teach on this subject, I often think of the progression that he gives here. He talks about the need to guard your eyes, right? And he says here he he made a covenant. What what was the covenant that he made? Yeah, not to gaze on someone who's not his wife. That's right. And, and there's that covenant there. And then notice what he says. If my heart follows my eyes. Isn't that interesting? So the first line of defense, according to Job, is you make a covenant with your eyes. Okay? You, you and your eyes say, we're, we're not going to do this thing. The second thing he says you guard against is, I've got to train my heart to not follow my eyes. You say, well, why is that? Because you can't check out at Walmart sometimes without seeing something unintentionally, right? I love what Paul said uh, to the Corinthians. He, he's talking about um, uh, talking about being around people 
that were sinful people, and you know that's bad because then they encourage you to sin. And he said, I didn't mean at all that, that you weren't ever to hang around with anybody who ever sins, because if that was the case, you'd have to leave the, the world. Okay, And that's kind of what we're thinking here. I mean, you, heaven is the place where you don't have to guard your eyes anymore. Okay, But he says, sometimes you can't help to see things. And in that case, you have to train your heart to not follow your eyes. And the third thing is to not be enticed. You see that down there in the next uh, verse, verse, um, verse 7, my heart follows my eyes, and verse 9, if my heart has been enticed. And, and there's a progression there. Do you see the progression? He, makes, he says, I've got to guard my eyes. That's number one. Number two, I've got to train my heart to not follow my eyes when my eyes see something. And the third thing is, I've got to train my heart to not be enticed in that regard. So again, it's observation. I don't think Job is at all trying to teach about sexual purity here. But the as a very, very, very godly man, we, can, we should expect that he probably has some insight on how to handle stuff like this, right? And so maybe another time when we're talking about this subject, we'll develop that. But I, I throw that observation out there for your consideration because I think it's, it can be very helpful in that sort of thing. So he's defending himself, right? The first thing he says is, I, I, have, I have been pure, right? If, if I had done that, if I had, my heart had followed my eyes, if I had been enticed by another, then, then I would deserve. I would deserve, he says, for my wife to grind for another. Verse 13, picking it up in chapter 31, verse 13, if I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, then God, uh, uh, what then God... I'm sorry, what then could I do when God arises, when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? He says, if, if I've somehow ignored um, an issue with one of my servants, uh, and I, I ignored them, I didn't take their complaints seriously, then God would have something against me, right? Then I couldn't, I couldn't defend myself because I would have done something wrong. Verse 15, did not he who made me in the womb make me? And the same one fashion us in the womb. He says, God knows me. He made me. He knows me better than anybody else. Surely he knows that I'm innocent. He keeps going. He keeps flipping through the catalog. All these things that he might have done that he would have deserved God's punishment. Verse 16. If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or if I've eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared with it. Remember we saw a couple chapters ago, this was a man who was known in his community as the guy you went to if you were a widow in need, if you were an orphan, uh, if you had some... Uh, if you were poor and needed food or clothing, you went to Job. Because the text tells us in the previous chapters, he provided for all of these uh, people that needed help. Verse 18, he says, But from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy had no covering, if his loins had not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate. He said, if I had done any of those things, here's what I deserve, right? My shoulder fall out of my socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. He says, if I had done any of those things, that's what I deserve. But he says in verse 23, but calamity from God is a terror to me. And because of His majesty, I can do nothing. He says, I don't see any of these things in my life. 
and yet God punishes me. He brings these things into my life, and that scares me, he says. It, and and let's, let's just think about this for a minute. He, we've seen this a number of times where he talks about God being a terror to him. Why is God a terror to him? Think with me on this. Why, why does he feel like that? Yeah, David. Okay. Yeah, he's in a bad mood. Okay. And, and um, man, um, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the fatherhood of God in, in the sermon this morning um, in, as it relates to affliction. And um, I, I don't know what your upbringing was like, but... Uh, I've talked to some folks who had fathers who at any given moment might fly off the handle and get violent with them. And I appreciate what, what David said about this because I think as Job is wrestling with this whole deal he's starting to conclude maybe God's like that ungodly father. Maybe he does have a bad day. Maybe he does fly off the handle for no apparent reason. Maybe he does have those grumpy times. And, and, and he, here, here's what, when I, when I hear verse 23, you know what I hear? He's unpredictable. Do you hear that too? He is unpredictable. Okay? Now let me ask you a question. Is the God of Scripture unpredictable? Rusty? Okay. 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 That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, Henry? I think he's not unpredictable. I think he's unfathomable. Unfathomable, but not unpredictable? Okay. 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 Well, I appreciate that because I think that balances. Um, you both are right. We don't want to say we know the mind of the Lord because we don't. But Scripture affirms that there's a word. God is faithful. Faithful means I don't have to guess how he's going to respond. I, if his word says, this is who I am, I'm good, I'm always good, then I trust. Faithful means I can trust he's always good even when he doesn't seem like he is, he's good. Okay, another hand. Yeah.
Yes, Rich. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think e- even though we've seen moments where he's accusing God, uh, let's not forget the first two chapters of the book. This is a God-fearing man. This is a man of integrity and righteousness. What affliction has done in his life as is it has shown him some areas that he needs to grow and change in. That's what it's done. But it doesn't say... Um, you know all that, all that that we learned about him early on in the book is not true. Okay, just like all of us, we see him mature and godly and 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 doing well in lots of areas, and yet there are some areas that still need work. Yeah, right, Russell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's well said. So, so faith resolves the tension between God's unfathomableness and His faithfulness. Well said. Yeah. You know, I think that's that's part of the message of this book and the message of Scripture is that we learn what goodness is through affliction. We learn what a good, kind, heavenly Father does in affliction. Um, we go into affliction thinking, well, this is what seems good to me. And then we see God bring something else about and we say, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem like that's good. But, but that's part of the point. The affliction, as we trust God, uh, reveals to us more and more what his goodness is. Um, and I, th- I think that's part of the point. Sure. Hmm. If I don't know how God's going to react, 
Well, and I think, I appreciate you saying that, because I think, you know, that tendency combined with the fact that we want to be the ones to define what's good in our life, that's what leads us to think that God is unpredictable. When Scripture says there's no shifting shadow in him, there's no darkness, there's no um, uh, theological word, um, it's called his impassibility. I remember reading an article it's called God Without Mood Swings. You know? And that's that's what it's saying. Scripture teaches God is not you know, he's not this roller coaster of emotion. He's faithful, he's true, he's good, um, he, he's he's um, just in all his way. What what does uh, uh, Psalm one forty five say? He is he is righteous in all his ways and he's kind in all his deeds. That's saying, I, I know what I'm getting. I know what I'm getting when I trust this God. Um, but the challenge is, the reason it seems unpredictable sometimes is that I want to control and I want to define what's good. And when those things don't line up, then it seems like um, I'm not getting what I think I want. Uh, Sheila and then David. Well, I was just thinking, you know, the verse, which is, um, mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Okay. Very, very good. So, so even though God is always good and always just, always kind, righteous in all His ways, kind in all His deeds, that looks differently in different people's lives. Very good. Very good point, David. Well, and we talked about wisdom last time. Um, we are so incapable of seeing things clearly, of knowing what's right in situations, of being able to assess the whole situation and render some conclusion. Because only God can take into account all the variables. Only God sees the whole thing. Only He is omniscient. Um, and I think that's, that brings us right back where we need to be. That's true. That's true. 
Well, and I, and I think that's why, and we understand Job had a very limited revelation, but, um, but that's where we have to come back and anchor everything. Uh, faith, like Doc was saying, faith is, is anchored in the truth of who we know God to be in his word. And that, that's what anchors us and, and brings sanity in the midst of the chaos of life. Um, and so in a case like that, you know, we have to anchor um, our, our faith to what God says about eternal security or, or whatever. And, mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. All right, let's move on here, and then I've got I to gotta get to one little thing here. Um, he continues on in this vein, verse 24, If I put confidence in gold, if I called fine gold my trust, he says, you know, if I was trusting my riches. Uh, verse 29, If I had rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him, no, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Uh, so he's not going around cursing his enemies. Um, verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. That's Job saying, the defense rests. Right? It's his, it's his final plea. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare it to him. I declared to him the number of my steps. He had no idea that everything he's saying is going to get put in God's inspired word someday. And I think that's kind of ironic. Um, he, he's, he gets what he asked for. Remember he said a few chapters ago, Oh, that my plea might be etched in stone. It was better than that. It showed up in the canon. Careful what you ask for. Verse 38, If my land cries out against me, if it furrows, weep together. If I have eaten in fruit without money or I caused its owner... He's still going, right? He, he, you know, he, well, one more thing. One more thing, God. And then it says, the end of verse 40, The words of Job are ended. And that brings... Uh, well, it was up there a minute ago. That brings closure to the dialogue section. Now, here's what I want you to see. We don't have to guess about our interpretation of the dialogue section. This this is so great. One of the wonderful principles of Scripture goes like this. Ready? Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? Watch how Scripture itself interprets the whole dialogue section that just happened. Okay, Because on our way, we've basically made two conclusions, haven't we? We've said Job's friends have a wrong view of God's justice. They have this retributive theology, kind of, you know, you get what's coming to you kind of thing. And at the same time, Job is in the wrong as well because he is accusing God of being unjust in how he's being treated. Okay, So I, I I would say in the midst of all the good things that happens in the dialogue... Both the friends and Job have a major flaw in their theology. Okay? That's basically what we've concluded, right? Look at chapter 32, verse 1. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now stop right there. Who's talking? What's that? The narrator. 
We like narrators, don't we, David, with Hebrew dialogue. Why is the narrator an important person to listen to? He has an omniscient view of the story. The narrator, you ready, speaks with divine authority. The narrator, if you will, tells us the opinion of God. Because it's the narrator writing the story. We don't know who it is, but the narrator is the one who speaks with divine omniscience. He's the one who gives us God's opinion. So you think we better pay attention to what this guy's going to say? Because all can, can we trust the characters? No, the characters are sinful people just like you and me. They have some good stuff. They have some really bad stuff. But the narrator is someone we can trust. So let's listen to him again. Chapter 32, verse 1. Then these three men ceased answering Job because what? Remember that? God... Who am I trusting in? He's trusting in himself. And we're not saying that he is not a righteous man, that he's not a godly man, that all those things we learned about him are true. What we're saying is, in the course of this affliction, his trust has slid from God to himself. And in the course of him moving to trust in himself, he begins to accuse God of wrongdoing. Verse 2. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job, and his anger burned. Why? Here it is again. Because he justified himself before God. He said this. If it comes down between God being right and me being right, it's me. Well, that helps us to confirm our opinion of Job, doesn't it? Um, I've been harder on Job in my understanding of the book than some commentators have. Um, But I think this verse confirms what we've said about where he is. What about the friends? Look at uh, chapter 32, verse 3. And Elihu also, his anger burned against his three friends. Why? Because they had found no answer. And yet they had condemned Job. Okay? So what's going on there? They're condemning him. They're saying, we've got this theology, which means you must have sinned. But they couldn't prove it. They tried and they tried and they tried and they tried. And it didn't work. It didn't fit. They were wrong. So it's interesting. um, David and I have a a favorite book on Hebrew narrative. And one of the most important parts, one of the most important things the author says in the book is that when you're reading stories in the Bible, pay attention to what the narrator says because the narrator interprets the story for you. The narrator interprets the story from God's point of view. And so what I think we have in these two verses is confirmation uh, on our understanding of what's gone on in the dialogue section there. Okay? Questions on the dialogue section?
Yes, sir. Observation. Mm-hmm. It's a dangerous thing to, uh, to call God to your bar <laughs> and have him answer up. Yeah. Because yeah. what happens is, is God calls Job to his bar and has him answer. And God really never answers Job's questions. But don't we do that all the time? We say, why, why, why? Yeah. We do. Well, Job originally didn't say why. Lord yep. You know, that, yeah, that's a very important observation. I, I think a lot of the reason that people misunderstand the book of Job is they stop reading after chapter 2. They read chapters 1 and 2, and then they pick it up in chapter 39 with this great revelation of God, and they say, wow, Job's my hero. And when you skip the dialogue section, you, you miss exactly what, what Russell was saying. You miss that this very godly man who trusted in God, who didn't deny his creator, didn't accuse God of wrongdoing, that's all said there so that what happens in the dialogue section helps you to see, helps you to see what affliction and suffering is doing in this man's life. Yeah, there's no red S under this this suit. I mean, there's no red cape behind Job. He's He's not the Old Testament version of Superman. Um, he's a real man. And um, real men, even godly real men, have areas in their life that are sinful and still need God's grace and mercy to grow and change. And that's, that's part of what we're seeing here. All right. We're done with the hardest part of the book, the dialogue section. You made it. You're alive. This is good. Uh, next time we will pick it up and we'll see what the future holds with Mr. Elihu. Okay, let's pray.